The Bob Murphy Show, episode 188. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be talking again with Robert Bradley. We had him on a while ago talking about just his background in free market economics and the Austrian school and how he got his PhD under the guidance of Murray Rothbard. But today we're talking specifically about Rob's thoughts on what happened in Texas with the power outages that happened in February of 2021 in case future historians are listening to this. So let me just read a little bit from Rob's official bio. Robert L. Bradley Jr. is the CEO and founder of the Institute for Energy Research. As one of the nation's leading experts on the history and regulation of energy markets, he has testified before the U.S. Congress and the California Energy Commission, as well as lectured at numerous colleges, universities, and think tanks around the country. Bradley's views are frequently studied in the media. Bradley is the Energy and Climate Change Fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London, and an adjunct scholar at both the Cato Institute and the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He's a member of the Academic Review Committee at the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University. As the author of seven books, most recently Edison to Enron, Energy Markets and Political Strategies, Bradley has applied the classical liberal worldview to recent corporate controversies and energy policy debates. His energy primer, co-authored with Richard Fulmer, is Energy, the Master Resource. And that's a takeoff on Julian Simon's book called The Ultimate Resource. Bradley received a BA in economics from Rollins College. He received an MA in economics from the University of Houston and a PhD in political economy from International College. And again, I'm adding Rothbard was the you know, off-site dissertation chair for that one. He's been a Schultz Fellow for Economic Research and Liberty Fund Fellow for Economic Research. And in 2002, he received the Julian L. Simon Memorial Award for his work on energy and sustainable development. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Rob Bradley on the history of electricity development and regulation in the United States. And then later in the episode, we focus on Texas and what lessons should fans of the free market draw from what just happened in February. Well, Rob, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. It's good to be back. It's been a couple of years, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. So folks, like I say, you can go, I had Rob on before where he talked about, among other things, getting his PhD with Murray Rothbard as his dissertation advisor, which is one of the few people who can say that. And, uh, you know, so for the links of all that, I'll just go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 188. But what we're talking about this episode is just giving more context for the debacle in Texas with the storms that hit in February of 2021 and the power outages and the dis dispute and the debate in policy circles about, oh, Texas tried to experiment in deregulation and free market electricity, and it doesn't work. So I, I don't know. Where do you want to start with this, Rob? Well, maybe uh, start with the fact that electricity is a very different industry 
than oil and gas. We think of electricity, oil, gas, coal as the energy industry, but really it's the energy industries. Mm -hmm. And electricity is very unique because you have to consume it the moment that it's generated and put on the wires. You can store very little of it. Storage is prohibitively expensive, always has been, probably always will be. Mm -hmm. So uh, the model for electricity is very different from other commodities. I mean, that's such a basic point. And I think most people, when you say it, realize that. But I had never dwelt on that. That that really is amazing. So like with oil, you can go ahead and bring up the crude oil and then store it somewhere, like in salt mines or (laughs) or caverns or whatever. And uh, or you can process it. Then you can have the gasoline and jet fuel and stuff on, on hand. But you're saying with the electricity, right, that it's... So, you, yeah, you could store it in batteries is what you're saying, but that is extremely expensive. You you would never right. like, on a, it's not like when the wind is blowing, you'd go ahead and run the turbines and then charge up the batteries and then use it later when the wind's not blowing. But that's not the way you, right. you would it's, do it. It's uh, technologically possible, but it's economically extremely inefficient. Mm-hmm. And so electricity has a huge coordination problem. And uh, the question is, uh, do you rely on markets, private firms, entrepreneurship, market institutions to coordinate, or do you turn to regulation? And in the United States, uh, at the beginning of the industry, it was uh, very market-oriented, but as time went on in the 19th century, state regulation and federal regulation really has taken more and more of the decision-making within electricity outside of the firm to different government entities. Okay, so do you want to spend a little bit of time on just the, the basics of that? And like, I guess maybe how did, how do we get to the situation of like, what's ERCOT? And, you know, people claim that, oh yeah, Texas is, it's, it's a separate grid and it's, it's borne by market forces so I don't, I don't know how much detail you want to get into, but you want to just go ahead and yeah, tell us a, a bit about the history? Yeah, a little background, I think, would be uh, useful. At the beginning of the industry, uh, the late 19th century, early 20th, the industry was pretty much unregulated, uh, mm-hmm. not deregulated because it, it wasn't ever regulated. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, a, uh, it's a great story of the undesigned order of the market. You had the engineering genius, the invention genius of Thomas Edison, Mm -hmm. but you also had the entrepreneurial genius of a a gentleman that very few people know about. His name was Samuel Insel. And Insel was really the John D. Rockefeller of electricity. Okay. He came up with the uh, right business model for this very unique commodity that had to be consumed the moment it was produced. And there was a lot of trial and error, but he figured it out. It's a great story. Some of your readers, uh, if they want to read a a very interesting biography, they should read uh, Forrest McDonald's book, Insul, which is a wonderful reading. Uh, Forrest McDonald is known in free market classical liberal uh, circles as a, as a top historian. And that book is, uh, uh, comes very recommended. And then in my Edison to Enron book, mm-hmm. I uh, have several chapters 
summarizing the Edison Insel beginnings of the industry. And hey, when, hey, Rob, can I ask you, can you give us a sense, because this just shows my lack of historical knowledge. I know in the 1920s, when they talk about the Roaring Twenties, there was a big boom in the electrification of like regular households. But like what you're talking about, like at what point, you know, did, was it like the rich had it? Or are you talking about like factories that ran electricity? Like in the early 1900s, who was using electricity? That's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, well, uh, just to back up a little bit more, uh, Thomas Edison figures out all these new uses for electricity. So a J.P. Morgan can put the uh, light bulbs in his house and mm-hmm. make a deal with Edison, flip a switch, have a, a dirty coal generator in his backyard, which he got in trouble with his neighbors about, and he can turn on the lights. But at the beginning, uh, electricity was very much a luxury product. Mm-hmm. And what Insel did was he figured out the business model for electricity where he turned a luxury product into a, a mass necessity mm-hmm. for city dwellers and then uh, for those out in the country. And um, Edison's realized an Insel built upon the model that with electricity, there's tremendous economies of scale. In other words, with the big multi-megawatt generating plants, and back then it was all coal or what they called white coal, which was uh, hydroelectricity, but it was almost all coal, that if you could get General Electric to build bigger and bigger generators, you had huge economies of scale and costs could go down. At the beginning, you had dynamos, very small generators that might be in the basement of an office building, and it might serve just that office building. For uh, residentials, there was uh, virtually nothing, but, you know, it grew and grew. Now, Insel also realized that there was tremendous economies of scale with consumption. In other words, well, there's something that's very important here, and it's called the load factor. And the load factor is the average usage of a generating plant. So a generating plant might be built to serve the peak when everyone happens to have their lights on in the early evening. But for most of the day, the uh, generating plants uh, have a very low capacity factor. They might be running at 10, 15, 20%. So the challenge for Insel was to get the load factor up because you're paying for these generators uh, every minute of every hour of every day. Mm-hmm. And so Insel hired a number of statisticians, the first one in the industry, sitting there on their little, I don't know if you would call them a calculator, what you'd call them, they're do- but they're doing all these statistics. And uh, uh, so Insel worked really hard on creating new demands during the off-peak hours, like uh, elevators uh, in, uh, or just lights in office buildings were very big. So he's always trying to get the load factor up. And Insel did studies where he showed that he would have a load curve for, let's say, an apartment complex. Mm-hmm. And then he'd add a second apartment complex next to it. And he noticed that the load factor was a little higher. In other words, just the more users you have flattens out 
the load factor. So there's tremendous economies of scale and consumption and generation. And uh, Ensel figured out how to serve the farms. Everyone within the trade associations were saying, there's no way you can build a bunch of transmission from the big generators in Chicago out to the countryside. Uh, it won't work. And it ended up working in surprising everyone, the main reason being that the load factors out in the country were different than in the cities. So uh, Ensel is working very hard on the production side and the consumption side. And the other big lacuna of uh, the business model that Ensel discovered was, and this gets back to the load factor, because in the old days, the electric utilities, they, they, if there was more demand at the peak, they'd build a new generator to meet the peak. Mm-hmm. Well, they found out they'd lose a lot of money. Why? Because for most of the day, the generator just wasn't running enough. But Ensel was on vacation in England. It's at night. He notices the businesses have their lights on at night. And he's wondering how in the world can they afford this? And it turns out that a gentleman had invented a meter that uh, not only records your usage over the day or your total usage, it also recorded your peak usage. So those customers that had a real big peak they went to two-part pricing. You pay a demand charge for the piece, standing ready, and then a volumetric charge for what you actually use. So Ensel brought back the idea and uh, brought in these meters. So with a demand charge, you can cover the investment that you have to make to meet this customer's peak. And the volumetric charge would be for the total amount. So coming up with this new business model solve the economic calculation problem of the utilities. And Ensel would always, his model would be he'd go into a new place like he did in Chicago in the early 1890s, and he would buy up all the companies and their their inefficient dynamos, they'd call them, and he'd shut them down uh, get scrap value for him, and he'd build the big generators. And he would always be cutting his rates. He was cutting his rates well below the rates that he would charge if he was regulated as a public utility. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, they didn't have public utility regulation. So in the, the free market era, all these wonderful things are happening. The market is expanding tremendously. And uh, there is really no need for public utility regulation uh, in this period. So just to, to give people the intuition of that, to make sure they're getting the, one of the innovations he was doing. So intuitively, the idea is if you just kind of had separate little generators or dynamos for each enterprise, then they had to have the capacity to be able to meet the peak demand of whatever that operation was. But most of the day, then that particular generator was not operating at full capacity. So there was a lot of excess capacity at any given time. And then you had to charge to, you know, how much you charged per kilowatt hour or however they did it would have to be enough so that the total costs, including the fixed cost of building the dynamo was was covered, at least in the, in the life cycle. 
And then he came in and realized, no, I can scrap all that, make something big that has the capacity of these little ones or even not the capacity of them all summed up together because that's way too much. You don't need that much as long as he could figure out to distribute the demand over the day so that they're not all trying to use it at the same time because then you'd be back in the original situation. But if they spaced it out differently, then the same, a lower capacity could still satisfy all those users and then he could afford to charge less per kilowatt hour. Right. Uh, this is all economies of scale and in different directions. And, and with the demand charge pricing, that's the way that a utility could very rationally figure out how to be profitable mm -hmm. as demand grew. But the economies of scale and generation, uh, Insel was telling his old buddies, he, uh, Insel built up the company that became General Electric. And then Ensel uh, had a falling out with Edison, moved to Chicago where he wanted to introduce the so-called central station model. Mm -hmm. But with these big generators and Ensel, he would call General Electric and say, I want a five megawatt generator. And the engineers would go, well, we can't do that. Well, Ensel had the intuition. He was very good on the technical side of the business to know it could be done. So he just told them and he even took the risk. Okay, if it doesn't, doesn't work out, I'll take some of the risk in this. It'll be on me and not you. And uh, one of these big new generators, never been tried before, Ensel actually goes uh, and turns it on and it's rumbling. Mm -hmm. And uh, people think that, you know, it's going to explode, but it, it didn't. They had to turn it off. They had to make some modification. But Ansel kept doing this, you know, 5 megawatts, 10 megawatts, 20 megawatts. And uh, these machines, given that coal was very plentiful, could produce kilowatt hours significantly less than the small dynamos. So that was a big piece of it. The uh, flattening the load curve through consumption, a growing uh, user base was big. Two-part pricing was big. So Ensel is always cutting rates, and he cut rates something like 17, 18 times. He called it the cut and try strategy because you cut the rates, and then you get more users. So it's a virtuous uh, cycle here. Well, then uh, Ensel ends up being the one to sponsor or to push for public utility regulation on the state level. And when I first studied this, I thought, well, this is really strange because uh, Ensel's cutting rates, you know, rate regulation would only be downside for him. And then I later appreciated that Ensel was sort of uh, forced in the political realm to advocate state public utility regulation because of two things. One was lo local rate ordinances where the city fathers to get reelected would say, your maximum pa uh, electricity rate is going to be X, could be mm -hmm. very arbitrary. On the other side, there's always a push to municipalize the private investor-owned company. So you had these two forces that were hitting them. It was very expensive to fight these things. And uh, it's very risky. And Ensel, to get the money to build the generators, he needed to float, you know, 10, 20, 30-year bonds for this long-lived investment. And he was having trouble doing it. 
So that's when he decided to adopt the uh, state-level public utility regulation because he felt that the U.S. Constitution would protect them against takings. Okay, so it was sort of like a compromise on his part or a preemptive move, like rather than, is an important thing here the state versus city level regulation or is that not really the issue? Well, the, the point is that there wasn't a market failure that created the demand or the rationale for statewide public utility regulation. And what I mean by uh, this regulation is you get franchise protection mm-hmm. and they regulate your rates on a cost basis. And if you get franchise regulation where, you know, for the cities, I guess the cities would uh, would grant you this under the rules of the uh, the state public utility commission, then uh, you had some uh, surety where you could then float your bonds for you know, 20, 30 years. So, you know, the incorrect view is that uh, competition was so fierce that established companies went to get franchise protection mm-hmm. and they said, regulate my rates. Well, the what doesn't make sense there is that Insel is always, and he was the leader of the electric industry. He was the John D. Rockefeller of electricity. He was always cutting rates mm-hmm. and competition. You know, he would buy them out. It was centralization over a market. So the origins of public utility regulation and electricity, and it might be different with uh, manufactured natural gas and other areas, was uniquely because of existing, pre-existing government intervention. Okay, and so just to elaborate on that, you're saying, because there, there are there is a pattern in other industries, as I think you're alluding to, where certain people through genuine free market competition get on top. And then once they're at the top, then they turn to the government, you know, in the progressive era to, you know, regulate their competitors. So now that that solidifies their spot, but you're saying with electricity in particular, that doesn't make sense because by its nature, once you get on top, it's hard for somebody else to come along. And plus Insul was the innovator. It's not that he was worried about some upstart overturning his dominance that it was more he saw the writing on the wall and realized they're going to get me either way so why don't i go ahead and get in front of this and embrace a form of regulation that won't be so bad right again it's huge economies of scale so you can say it's a natural monopoly but insul's Mm -hmm. natural monopoly was always cut 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 rates cut and expand cut and expand mm-hmm. he was always trying to fill in with the load factor and insul was very uh, instrumental in building chicago's rail lines that ran off electricity there was a daytime use for electricity for uh, mass transit and then like i said before going out to the farms where they have different load factors Mm-hmm. He's doing it all, and it's a virtuous circle, and there's really no re- no reason for public utility regulation, at least with electricity. Now, I say this, there could be other instances where the companies weren't doing all the things that Insul was doing, and they saw franchise protection even in return for regulating their rates as a good thing. But I will mention this, when Edison started pushing for public statewide public utility regulation, he was the outlier. The 
Trade Association, the American Electric Light Association, the predecessor of the uh, Edison Electric Institute, the membership was very much against public utility regulation. A lot of them just they didn't want their rates uh, regulated. Mm -hmm. So it's a very interesting case study, and in some ways it might be unique. But with the beginning of regulation, you had the original coordination model of the utility is vertically integrated. Uh, they do everything from mine or buy the coal to sell the electricity to end users, business industry and residential. So that's how the coordination problem was solved. And Ensel even spent a lot of money to uh, build in some storage actual storage. You see these huge batteries. Mm -hmm. He was scared to death that if electricity ever went out, people would get stuck on elevators and the rest of it, and it was life-threatening. And so in the Insul era, you know, through the, the early decades of the uh, 20th century, he never had any big outages. You know, he did all the right things. Not only did he have the right amount of reserves, but uh, he even had storage. And then Insul, he started buying other companies, and he ended up with one-eighth of the nation's electricity. Mm -hmm. And what he would do, like in the Chicago area, he would, and he had a firm next door, they would enter into contracts and build long-term transmission where if there's a problem, they can get power from their neighbor not so much, you know, in a in a big storm or to made a unusual peak, but he saw this as cheaper than than just building all your own generation. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So, is it at the point of the your discussion where you can transition to Texas to explain? Yeah, we can. Uh, so, the utility model that came out of public utility regulation and really existed through the uh, 80s was the integrated public utility. And from the rate-based incentives, utilities were building a lot of generation. They loved nuclear, for example, because nuclear was so expensive. Utilities even like coal plants more than gas plants, even though the gas plants were cheaper because the coal plants had more initial capital investment. And there's all the jokes about, you know, shining up your assets, uh, you know, spending money to keep them pristine. So this model, you did have some can, blackouts. Hey, Brad, I think I know what you're talking about, but for the list, could you just elaborate on that? Why, why would they want to have more expensive plants? Yeah. Uh, so under public utility regulation, you get an allowed rate of return on invested capital. And your invested capital has to be reasonable as judged by the Public Utility Commission. So if you build a new generating plant for a million dollars and your allowed rate of return is 15%, then each year, and there is an allowance for depreciation, you get 15% times a million dollars or uh, what, a hundred and is it 150? No, it's a fifteen thousand, you know, dollar return. One hundred fifty thousand on your rate base. One 
hundred, yeah, hundred fifty thousand in your example. One hundred fifty, yeah. is that right? Yeah. So you're saying they get to charge per kilowatt hour, such that given the demand curve of their customers, they end up making a fifteen percent return on their capital. So implicitly, the more they spend on that plant up front, the higher they're allowed. The more they're allowed to charge for electricity to the Absolutely. final consumer. And there was a a utility CEO said. This is the only business where I can make money by uh, redecorating my office. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so under this model, rely- there was a lot of reliability that was built in for a couple of reasons. One was a rate-based incentives we just talked about, but the utility was also vertically integrated where they did everything. And so they were in control of uh, everything. And you sometimes you'd have major blackouts, but it was, you know, a transformer blows and there's sort of physical type problems. And, uh, you know, under franchise public utility regulation, if you're the only one and there's no potential competition, then that might bring out the the worst uh, in utilities. So that was a model until Enron in particular and some industrial end users started pushing for mandatory open access beginning, I guess, in the uh, early 90s or so. And in Texas, there was a uh, legislation signed by uh, George W. Bush in 1999, and it was electric restructuring, and they called it deregulation, but it wasn't deregulation. But what you're doing is, and there's some other regulation I haven't talked about, but what you're doing is you are demoting the utility and the utility is going to end up making its money, really the same amount of money off of uh, its transmission and distribution function than it did before when it actually generated its uh, own power because the cost of uh, buying, selling electricity, that actually was just a pass-through dollar for dollar. They didn't make their money. They made their money on actual generation and uh, transmission. Now, there's another very important federal law that was passed when the Ensel Empire fell during the Great Depression, another interesting story. It's called the Public Utility Holding Company Act of 1935. And this was against holding companies So it uh, really disaggregated. It was an attack on horizontal integration of the utilities. Uh, And the law said you cannot have a utility, electric or gas utility in two states. You only have it in one state and you can only have it in two states if it's contiguous, Mm -hmm. if your market is contiguous. But, you know, Ensel couldn't own an electric company in California. or So a lot of gas and electric companies had to divest, okay? So unlike in oil, where you have oil majors that are geographically all over the place and they're integrated, now you uh, gas and electric utilities are dismembered and you don't have the electricity major or the natural gas major. And I would argue that in a free market without regulation, you not only have the oil majors, but you'd have the electricity majors and the natural gas majors where they're vertically and horizontally integrated, where they're handling the coordination 
function. So Texas ends up with mandatory open access where um, their utilities are getting out of the buying and selling of electricity and they're just in the distribution phase. And then the question is, well, who plans, you know, who at the wholesale level is doing all the planning with generation on the one side and uh, distribution or sales on the other? And that's where uh, Texas turns to a supposed nonprofit corporation. And that term is very strange for good reason. Mm-hmm. And that was the uh, ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me just make sure we're catching that. So you're saying historically, the utilities, you know, in the model that Insel pioneered, handle it from generation plant to the light bulb in your house that was basically one company that was in charge of all of that. And so any efficiencies involved in coordination and, and you know, they could take that all into account in principle, whereas the push in the 90s and, you know, for example, in Texas and with Governor Bush at the time signing something in 99, I think you said, moved away from that model and instead the, the actual utilities more were just focused on the, the generation and then they would just sell it into a wholesale market and then not worry about how does it actually get into the customers, the end customers place. And so we need some right. other entity to do that now. Okay. And in and Texas, the there was term, it's mandatory open access. And this is sort of the neoclassical idea more firms, the better, more competition, right. mm-hmm. the better. So you can have all these retailing companies come in. The Robert Murphy Electric uh, Retailing Company, the Rob Bradley, and we don't have to own much. We just need to buy and sell electricity, right? And we need, you know, some capital, not much, but you know, there's certain liquidity standards and credit standards. There's things. There's things you have to do, but you can have all these people come in and provide competition, and the regulation on the traditional electric utility companies is that you provide the last mile of transmission, sort of the retail part, and you let all this wholesale buying and selling of electricity occur with all the retailing companies. And this is efficiency. It's lower prices for consumers because of competition. But this is, think of it as uh, uh, Uber or, or ultra competition, but yet electricity has a very unique coordination problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't screw up electricity. So you're getting away from the advantages of vertical integration, just that, that business structure, and you're depending on now an outside agency which is ERCOT, which is regulated by the state public uh, utility commission. And it's also uh, responsible or it's overseen by the Texas legislature. This is a non-market agency that's now in the coordination uh, business. And what just what happened in Texas was a massive planning failure. When you say what happened in Texas, you mean the specifically February 2021, the, the stuff that as we're recording this is still in the public discussion. What just happened mm-hmm. wasn't supposed to happen, 
ERCOT, the key word in their title is reliability. Mm-hmm. And there was an ultra failure. This is the biggest planning failure in the history of the electricity industry. And the electricity industry is one of the biggest industries in the United States. So this begs the question, okay, why? Mm-hmm. We have market actors. We have government planners. And a lot of even free market types, and I'm not going to mention names, have said, oh, gosh, this wasn't ERCOT's fault. Yeah, and it wasn't renewables' fault because we had planned and knew that renewables weren't going to be there anyway, mm-hmm. which to me says a lot. And renewables did underperform. But you have all this conventional generation that didn't perform. And so the question is, well, what is this a massive entrepreneurial failure of all these private parties that uh, didn't winterize and do the basic things that you do for an unusual event? Is this just bad market entrepreneurship or is it something else? And I'm looking at the something else being government intervention in the whole culture of government intervention where you have a market where it's sort of mother may I. You have outside parties that are responsible for reliability rather than the companies themselves where they put their corporate guarantee behind their ability to perform. Okay, so is this a fair paraphrase of what you just said there that say what you will about the old model and people might have worried that somebody like an incel has too much power, like no pun intended, like, you know, too much control over our lives. But when it was, you know, generation plant to the light bulb and that was all the same company, if your power went out when it was cold, you would know who to blame. It was that company and then, you know, they would get hit and so that they would have the right incentives to try as human, as much as humanly possible to not let that happen. And you even mentioned incel did have battery back up and such, you know, just because he didn't want to be caught with his pants down. And you're saying that now with ERCOT, ironically, which its very name says we're here for electric reliability, that now the, the individual generators and stuff that they're, that's not their fault. They can just say, no, we're in this system. ERCOT was in charge of planning and they screwed up. So don't look at us, look at ERCOT. That's their fault. Yeah. Th- yeah. That's part of it. Uh, but there's, uh, you know, you have to look at sort of the I want to use the term corporate culture. Mm-hmm. Let's say that, uh, you know, unlike before under the old utility model, Robert Murphy can build a power generator. Uh, you can build a gas-fired combined cycle plant and you you do it on spec, figuring that you can sell your power on average to make enough money uh, to be profitable and maybe very profitable. And this is the disaggregation, the uh, getting away from vertical integration where you have independence generating power. Now, one of the big problems you face and even coming into the market is that there's a whole lot of wind generation that will bid against you and bring your prices down. And there's stories about how wind generators can will sell kilowatt hours even at a negative price in order to get a 2.4 cent per kilowatt hour tax credit. So that discourages new generation from coming on, traditional generation, but it does something else. It forces companies that are in operation 
to cut cost and maybe not be as prudent as they would be because of this huge government distortion. So the Robert Murphy uh, generating plant, you might say, well, no, I'm not going to plan for a one in a hundred year event because, you know, I'm barely making it as it is. I can't spend $2 million on winter weatherization. And this might sound very hypothetical, but uh, there's some precedent for this. Uh, Out in California with the wildfires where PG&E, their wires were part of the problem, Mm -hmm. they have testified, some of their executives have testified that this was a very costly item and they didn't think they could add it into rates because the rates were already very inflated because everything they're doing in the name of decarbonization and renewables and the rest of it, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's an example where a business is not being prudent because of government intervention distracting or discouraging a corporation from doing job one, which in electricity is reliability. And then the other example, BP, Beyond Petroleum, they were the green environmental company. Why did Deepwater Horizon occur on their watch? And if you look closely, they had all sorts of other environmental problems where they're cutting costs or they're not being prudent because their whole focus, Sir John Brown and the rest of them, was on global warming, renewables, all the things that were really a distraction from job one, and that is to be safe. So government intervention can uh, interfere with coordination, prosperity, performance in obvious ways, but there's subtle ways too. And I call this the seen and the unseen. So back to Texas, the scene is the frozen wind turbines, the fact that solar and wind disappeared at the peak, you know, the winter peak, uh, you know, not only the summer peak, but then there's the, the unseen, and that is there's less generation in the market because of wind and solar, less reliable generation, and there's less prudence for job one among corporations because of this huge distraction of decarbonization and renewables. Okay, um, the narrative, I, I like, for example, somebody like Paul Krugman would say, oh, no, the, you know, the, the fans of the free market used to point at Texas as the leader in deregulated electricity, and they were so proud that they weren't tied to the rest of the country's grid. And, you know, they, they allowed for very high wholesale prices and even for contracts that would pass that through the consumer. And now look what that got us. Not only are consumers getting hit with, you know, multi-thousand dollar bills for one month of electricity, but also there was massive failure. So it's the worst of both worlds. There's the free market, at least in electricity for you. So I'm guessing you don't agree with that take. Yeah, it's uh, very uh, superficial. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, the mandatory open access model is not free market. And I, I am trying to push the free market community, even Austrian economists, you know, I'm not going to name names, but to just say that uh, ERCOT is a government agency, uh, ERCOT is a planning agency, and ERCOT and the State Public Utility Commission, they are in the reliability business, so they have to decide how much do we pay just for uh, reliability. 
the planning agency has to determine how much do we pay to incentivize for reliability? And then what do we do to keep rates low for consumers? And there's some government planning agencies in other uh, regions of the country, other independent system operators, where they, they have special capacity payments. It's like sort of a demand charge to make sure you have all this reliability. Well, uh, ERCOT, they weren't so keen on that. They're thinking more in terms of just, you know, lower prices. Mm-hmm. So they depended on really the spot price. Well, it doesn't look so good. Number one, there there seems to be a huge planning er- uh, error where they went up to their maximum of 9000 per kilowatt hour. It's hard, it's hard to uh, think in those terms. And they should have reduced the price, but they didn't. And there's a question of a $16 billion overcharge because for a day and a half, ERCOT was stuck at the at the maximum rate where it, you know the market clearing level would have been lower. We'll find out more about that. But do you, you get the idea that these are government planners and they're de- trying to depend on price in the middle of a just a total snafu to somehow balance the market versus a more entrepreneurial approach that I think uh, electricity majors would have done is to make sure you don't get to this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, it's, a, it, it's a real planning uh, train wreck. And there's a, not a, a lot of analysis still to be done. But I think at the end of the day, free market economists are going to realize that this mandatory open access model uh, put planners or necessitated government planning agencies to get into the electricity business and with all the choices that they have to make between keeping prices low and ensuring for reliability, that they made a huge mistake. So, I mean, that's a pretty obvious point that even I hadn't fully absorbed is that, you know, the narrow question of what was to, who was to blame or what was to blame because you got, you know, Governor Abbott and stuff going on Fox News saying, oh, this was wind power's fault and the you know, Wall Street Journal picking that up, as, as you know. And then guys like Krugman pushing back and saying, no, no, it was natural gas. One of the trump cards they play, the people who want to say, no, this is basically the fault of natural gas, or at least thermal plants more generally, but natural gas in particular and not wind, was they'll look at the ERCOTs. There's some, you've probably seen it, Rob. I think it was like in November, an ERCOT document, like laying out, here's what our scenario, our contingency plans are for like an extreme winter event. And they were assuming that, it, let's assume it'll be a low wind scenario so they weren't expecting much from wind and they were expecting such and such from thermal plants. And then the thermal plants came in way under what they were planning on. But you're right. The whole thing there is why is there this one agency that's in charge of planning the state's electricity load and stuff like that? That's whatever you call that what you will, but that's not laissez-faire capitalism. Right. There's a cluster of entrepreneurial error here. And, you know, we love that term. That was Rothbard's term for mm. the business cycle. And you have to get back and look at prices and planning to try to understand, is this a massive entrepreneurial error? And, you know, Rothbard would say, no, it's not coincidence. Something is misleading everyone. And, you know, with with monetary, they're not uh, reflecting true values. But here it's something else. But this is all about mandatory open access, failing in the 
coordination phase. And there's a lot of blame to go around here. And I think it points toward uh, planning, but it also points toward this neoclassical notion that more firms are better. Mm-hmm. That, you know, with, with mandatory open access, you have dozens of firms that are, you know, in this space competing against each other. And somehow that's optimal versus cooperation and coordination, which is, is the central element of vertical integration. Okay. So in standard economics textbooks, they'll talk, and you used this term earlier, they'll say something like electricity is a quote, natural monopoly. Meaning if we just leave it to market forces because of economies of scale, both in the generation and the transmission, you don't want to have 16 different companies with their own power lines on your street. That's crazy. If one firm just comes in and buys them all up, that's way cheaper. But then because of that, the claim is the firm that runs the natural monopoly would then charge monopoly prices, which the textbook says is bad for consumers. There's dead weight loss, blah, blah, blah. And so that's the rationale for public rate regulation is to, yep, go ahead and designate a monopolist for a region because whether you have the free market or regulation, you're going to get one firm doing most of it. So let's go ahead and just designate it. And then though you don't let them charge whatever the market will bear, you instead do like cost plus pricing like you talked about earlier. So that's the one model and so I think if I'm getting what you're saying, Rob, is some free market economists perhaps understandably think, oh, the way to combat that statist approach is where the government nominates one firm to be the public utility that's then regulated. Instead, have a multiplicity of firms in this market and go ahead and let them charge whatever the market will bear. And that's what laissez-faire looks like. And you're pointing out, no, actually in electricity, there really should just be a few dominant players and so that that's part of the issue here, that the, what, what the free market fans or some of them thought was the ideal is incorrect. Uh, yeah, there are tremendous economies in scale and electricity, tremendous. And electricity is different in the sense that you need a coordinated plan over a control area uh, because, uh, you know, electricity, you know, it moves and it you can't, you can't control electron to electron like you can with natural gas or uh, oil, the rest of it. You pretty much, you know, mm-hmm. can follow the uh, units. But this doesn't mean that you have to, number one, you, you should respect that, but go to the electricity major model uh, rather than state public utility regulation, where you're creating incentives for things like smart meters, where you spend $1,000 on a, some meter in your home where you can you can save, you know, 20 cents on some days by running your dishwasher, you know, at night and all mm-hmm. that. So there's a lot of bad incentives under public utility regulation. But in a free market, yes, you will have, uh, you know, a dominant company but really, rather than just looking at it as a monopoly situation, you have to realize that consumers, they can organize too. You can turn a monopoly situation in sort of a monopsony, monopsony situation where you hire the right attorneys to represent you, whether it's homeowners associations for uh, residences or uh, business trade groups, and you 
use some economies of scale on the consumer side in addition to the provider side. So, you know, that's one argument against this idea that you have a natural monopoly and uh, you have to, you know, turn to government intervention. And there's other arguments too. Terrell Dempsey's why uh, regulate utilities and I could say why regulate electric utilities mm-hmm. where uh, you could organize, go to the homeowners associations and the business groups, and you could just get these firm contracts and then try to buy out the company. Or, you know, when you think of wires on a pole, it's not like you're tearing up the streets with, you know, natural gas. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, wires on a pole, if there's a lot of right away, you know, some entrepreneur could uh, figure out a, a region where it can technologically work. He can get his cost down where it's going to put some pressure on the existing supplier. So we need a whole market discovery process with this. But I think the electricity major and reliability are very important here with electricity. Mm-hmm. And also, too, I know you know this stuff, Rob, but just for people who this is new to them to think about a free market electricity, just because probably in practice, you know, for a given neighborhood, once there's a company that services them, you know, gives them their water, their natural gas, their electricity, whatever, just because it would be, there's a kind of a, a hurdle there for another company. In other words, they could get away with, quote, charging more than they should, to, to use terms loosely, because there is a hurdle for another firm to come in and just set up all that infrastructure. But still, at any given time, there are new neighborhoods being built, you know, around the country. And so the developer, you know, the real estate developers who are going, you know, cutting down a bunch of trees or whatever and building a new cul-de-sac and whatever, when they take bids from existing companies, there's lots of companies like that that would be around the country providing those, quote, monopolies for individual regions. It doesn't mean there's one company that does it for everywhere in the United States. There could be a hundred different competing companies, each of which has their own little quote monopolies at the neighborhood level. And so for new resident, you know, new residential areas, new tracks of housing that are being developed, they would get very competitive bids from those companies on the front end. And so, you know, that, that kind of just shows that this idea, it's not just like, oh, once it's locked in, you're dead. There's a lot of innovation that would be occurring and, and uh, yeah, and then yeah, true is still, that is the ultimate check that if some place did get ridiculously expensive, then some competitor would come in and like you say, put down their own lines. It's not, it's not impossible to lay your own right, power lines. Right. So, you know, one, one thing we should do today is just to get rid of franchise protection. Mm-hmm. Just get rid of it. Uh, even if you still have, you know, right regulation. And you can imagine that some entrepreneur uh, with these new uh, home projects could figure out a way to uh, build a electric gen- generating company, could enter into contracts with uh, neighboring companies where you know reliable electricity at a competitive price could be offered. They call it distributed generation. Now, keep in mind, there's a, a, the economies of scale are very big in this industry uh, on not only generation, but on the usage side. Uh, you really want to get a lot of different customers with different load profiles. Uh, but, you know, through contracts between uh, generators, 
where they sell their electricity here or there. There's just a lot of innovative ways, and we're not going to have this with franchise protection. We're not going to have it with rate regulation, and we're certainly not going to have it with mandatory open access where outside government bodies are basically uh, trying to decide how to price electricity affordably, uh, yet have reliability. Hey, folks, let's take a break from the discussion to mention that if you are interested in the infinite banking concept or IBC, but you never really looked into it, you may have heard me mention it, we have a video series that's up. It's been up for a few months now, but just in case you missed it, it's called The Foundations of IBC. So it's just short little 10 to 15 minute chunks of video where Carlos Lara, David Stearns, and I take turns teaching on relevant aspects of IBC. We start at the beginning and assume you know nothing and go through the basics. And uh, I think you should give it a shot. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash foundations to see the free video series that's now online. I want to ask you, Rob, have you seen this one? Again, so I, I was reading a lot from like the other side just to make sure I you know knew where they were coming from and I wasn't missing anything obvious. And so I think probably the single strongest argument for the people who want to say, quit blaming this on renewables. And yes, it's true. Like the production tax credit at the federal level incentivized the expansion of wind. So yep, it is true in Texas. There's a lot of installed wind capacity. And then like, as you pointed out in your article, Rob, which I carried over into mine about, about Krugman, when Krugman said Texas's wind power is a small fraction of the total. And actually in 2020, it was 22% of the total electricity generated. So I mean, that's, you know, arguably not a small fraction. But the people pushing back against that, they say this isn't the first time there was a bad winter storm, and I forget the exact year, but like 10 years ago or something, it wasn't as bad as this one in terms of the outages, but it happened back then. And at that point, wind was really, really was a much smaller fraction. Yeah. So doesn't that show that, come on, it's these, and, and then back then too, the, you know, the post-game analysis was you guys should have winterized your natural gas lines and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, so we're back to the, the cluster of entrepreneurial mm -hmm. error. Certainly it can occur. You know, we need a lot of case studies where you look at corporate failures, whatever the industry, and try to figure out why did it occur. And some or a lot of these are going to be just bad entrepreneurship. They had the right incentive, but they did the wrong thing. But when you really peel things back, and I've used the examples of PG&E, uh, BP, and, you know, now uh, ERCOT are uh, really all the uh, all the private companies in Texas where they had generation that should have been on, but it wasn't because of free, freeze-offs or whatever. You know, all these companies, I'm seeing government intervention in subtle ways as being very causal. Now, this gets sort of to the Enron example also. Now, it's true that Enron was behind the 1999 legislation that Krugman and others look at as, you know, the bad boy in all this. And that's true in the sense that it got you away from the old public utility uh, regulation model where there was not only reliability, there might have been too much reliability because of rate-based incentives. But just the case, you look at Enron itself, this massive corporate failure. 
And, uh, you know, Krugman and a lot of others would say, this is market failure, you know, bad investments, deceit, you know, you can't leave corporations alone. You got to regulate the hell hell out of them. And uh, Robert Bryson, his book on Enron, he says, well, what caused all this? And he says, fish rod at the head, you know, so most people... Most historians or the public, they're reading about Enron, and God, they're so stupid. Well, in my uh, history of Enron, I had to come up with a new term to try to explain all this error and sort of get to the why behind the why. You know, the why Enron failed was, you know, bad cash flow, bad investments, loss of investor confidence. Okay, but why did it fool everybody? Why did it go on so long? The most innovative company in the United States, you know, five years running from Fortune magazine. Why, why, why? And uh, I had to come up with a new term called contra-capitalism, where I explain Enron in the sense of uh, a whole lot of rent-seeking and being politically correct in a very interventionist world, also strategic deceit, what I call philosophical fraud, which is, it's not quite, you can't quite prosecute them over it, but they're being real deceitful. Mm -hmm. And then massive imprudence. And I go back to the major classical liberals from Adam Smith and Samuel Smiles to Ayn Rand to Charles Koch to explain that there's an an anti-capitalist ethos that explains Enron in a way that no other explanation really can. And so what I'm saying is in a very mixed economy with all this political correctness, all this intervention, it brings out the worst in corporations. And the debacle here in Texas, that's sort of linked to Enron in the sense that there's just a whole culture from intervention that's bringing out the worst in corporations. So that's an area I think we need to focus more on. And it's very subtle. It's very much the unseen, but that's part of the Texas debacle too. Mm-hmm. I think we talked a little bit about Enron the last time I had you on, but just for the people who don't know. So now there's been a sort of a history revisionism where Enron is cast as like the arch capitalist free market company. And of course that blew up because we all know free markets don't work in energy markets, but at the, before the scandals, Enron was a darling of the left. They were very, quote, responsible stewards of the environment and were pushing green energy and such. Do I, is that correct? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, Ken Lay, his business model was not only natural gas over coal, but Enron really rescued the uh, wind and solar industries in the U.S. with new capital investments and acquisitions and um Ken Lay was the father of the Civil War within the fossil fuel industry where, you know, in the old days, uh, coal, natural gas, and oil, they had their fights, but they kind of got together or got along. But Enron uh, really started the natural gas versus coal Civil War. And then Enron, after the Gulf crisis in the early 90s, Enron uh, uh, turned its guns against oil. They were interested in natural gas vehicles. They wanted natural gas to be burned in 
dual fuel power plants instead of oil. There were a lot of self-interested reasons. So the fossil fuel industry got split into three parts mm-hmm. politically, and that sort of set the stage for what environmentalists today are doing because now they, they're going after natural gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the whole Enron political economy, government intervention, political correctness model is something that's very causal for understanding what's going on today. And that's something, too, that I didn't fully appreciate until, you know, working at the Institute for Energy Research and getting into the, some of this stuff that, like, I remember, you know, oh, gee, why would Exxon all of a sudden be in favor of a carbon tax? And it's like, well, because they bought a bunch of natural gas and, you know, and then knowing that for electricity production, certainly, you know, now it's changing, but back then it was more like if they, if they put in a, a pretty steep carbon tax, it's not that the nation's going to go to wind and solar, it's going to be natural gas. Right, because that's that's less carbon intensive than coal and uh, oil fired plants, and so that's you know you could see how that's why somebody who was in natural gas might publicly be for a carbon tax because oh I'm so concerned about climate change, but actually that's going to help them because even though natural gas has carbon in it, it's just practically speaking the the carbon free technologies at least absent nuclear aren't, aren't going to be there for a long time that, you know, natural gas is going to be the go-to if you have a pretty steep carbon tax. Yeah, that, that's a big part of it. Part of it is, you know, Exxon might be like Insul found himself, uh, you know, more than a century ago where you have all this government intervention coming at you. There's a club in the closet. So now you have to espouse something that you'd never espouse Mm -hmm. on a standalone basis, just trying to manage the, regulatory uh, risk. But, you know, again, this is bringing out the worst in corporations. Uh, Exxon Mm -hmm. has spent a lot of money on biofuels, algae, trying to come up with something that's green, and it's uh, all been futile, and it's also controversial. So you have all these corporations doing the wrong thing. Or like you said, too, like with BP, just the irony that it used to be British Petroleum, and then they changed their name to – or what it's supposed to be is beyond petroleum. Right. That would be like McDonald's saying, you know, beyond burgers or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that it's like burgers. they're they're literally going against their whole, or, you know, Ronald McDonald is a, is a jerk, our new corporate slogan. Right. So, yeah, the whole greenwashing thing uh, is a major uh, theme today, and, and that's a whole, whole nother discussion. So as we're sort of reaching the point where, you know, we had, we had said we'd go about an hour and 15 minutes here is what, what do you want to leave the the listener with? Is there, is there some overarching lesson here? Yes. Uh, and that is even the free market community has misinterpreted this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, even if you leave renewables alone and you don't get into the whole global warming uh, thing and you just look at mandatory open access and the Texas model, which was supposed to be, you know, the most deregulated model in the United States. You have all these free marketeers going, okay, okay. I think they're in denial right now mm-hmm. that uh, you know ERCOT is a government agency. ERCOT is a planning agency, and a huge planning error has occurred. And it's just way too superficial to say, 
Well, look, this was a very unique tail event and that the private sector, you know, they failed. We had this big cluster of entrepreneurial error. I think that's all wrong. And I hope this opens up a discussion about planning in electricity Mm -hmm. and that uh, the idea of total deregulation getting away from mandatory open access and the idea of electricity majors with vertical and horizontal uh, integration is really the best way to go, certainly for reliability. And I think prices will be competitive uh, over the long term, too, with a lot of entrepreneurship on the consumption and the production side. Okay, well, that makes sense. I have two little final questions for you that are related. So one is just a quick one off the top of your head. I've seen some people suggest that, hey, maybe it's just, you know, it's Texas. This was unusually cold. And maybe it's just not worth it economically. Maybe, you know, rather than spending the money to winterize and all this, maybe they just, you just roll the dice and say, yeah, well, every 10 years, we're going to have something like this. You know, maybe you could do things so it's not quite so bad. But the idea that you're going to make your infrastructure able to withstand something that's really unique, maybe that doesn't make economic sense. So what, what's your take on, on that? Like, I just don't know the relevant numbers. Yeah, well, here's another problem. Texas and ERCOT, they don't cross state lines because they don't want to be federally regulated. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a regulatory escape to have the control area all be within Texas. But that gets back to government intervention creating the incentive to do something that's that's less efficient. And then the other question is ERCOT, they control 80% of the Texas market. Well, should it be 85%? Should it be 60%? Uh, you know, what is, what is it? Uh, and this all gets back to central planning. So in a, in a true deregulated world, you'd have uh, electricity majors working with each other on reliability agreements, there'd be just a whole lot of coordination that we just don't see today. So the free market types that are trying to make ERCOT and the rules more market conforming, even talking mm-hmm. in some Hayekian language or uh, Eleanor Olstrom language, this is all second best. Uh, and, you mm-hmm. know, the idea of this commons problems, I think we need to uh, rethink it and at least those that are in the free market community that are on the other side that are totally wed to open access, they've got to at least present another view toward their view, mm-hmm. which is much more free market and uh, I would argue Hayekian in consonant with Austrian economics. Okay, and then the last thing, just to sort of piggyback on your your thoughts about what the free market community and, and how they've perhaps erroneously been holding up Texas as this paragon of deregulation. So what if a, a regular economist type, you know, someone like a Paul Krugman or something says, okay, everyone, look at Rob Bradley is here saying, yeah, the Texas model in a sense is less regulated than the California markets or whatever. And Rob admits though, that it, it failed in Texas and we basically need, you know, a, a night watchman state or anarcho-capitalism and markets for it to really work. So given that we're not going to do that anytime soon, we're not going to get the model that Rob Bradley wants, we better have conventional public utility regulation because, as Texas shows, going halfway leads to disaster. That even Rob Bradley admits the Texas model doesn't work, so why don't we just have full regulation? The free market types are saying, look, 
we have some reforms. We can do regulation better in the future. Mm-hmm. We made these mistakes. We're going to learn from experience, tweak the rules, you know, make it more market conforming, and let's do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I kind of I understand what they're doing, but this is still a very regulated situation. It is still planning under any sane definition of what government uh, planning is. And let's at least have this discussion of this other alternative, a true free market alternative. And I hope this leads to a lot of thought about corporate structure and the advantages of integration. There's lots of industries other than electricity where the integration model is very viable. So I think this is an op- this Texas debacle is an opportunity for a total rethink on a theoretical level and a practical level of what the choices are. Ideas have consequences. It could be that uh, we start a discussion, you know, out of the ERCOT uh, debacle that will um, lead to some very different structural reforms you know, in future years, decades, or maybe a generation. But let's uh, let's broaden the debate. Okay, great. Yeah, so I think that's a logical stopping point. Folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 188 for the links of the stuff we've talked about, including, you know, Rob's got lots of books on, you know, some of the issues we've, we've brought up here. So, Rob, thanks again for your sharing your expertise in the history of not just oil and gas, but you also know a lot about the electricity market. Well, I'm trying to get up to speed. It was awfully cold here uh, recently. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I didn't even ask you. Did, did you personally, were you out of power? Uh, you know what? I, I was pretty good here in the hill country. We have mm-hmm. a co-op. Uh, is it a co-op or a, uh, no, it's a, it's a little muni. And we had some rolling outages, but not nearly as bad as in Houston, 270 miles away, where they were without electricity for 48 hours, uh, even longer, a lot of people. Mm. They were pulling out all the blankets. Uh, They were uh, burning lots of wood. By the way, you know, CO2 emissions can can be pretty high even without electricity. So, you know, all sorts of stories in the major cities. But uh, this is a real debacle. And I hope that like the 1970s, gasoline lines that some of us old guys remember that this will lead to some fundamental rethinking. Mm -hmm. We can only hope. Well, thanks again for your time, Rob. You bet. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.